Hello, everybody. Hello. And welcome to the New York Mystery Machine. Tammy Hall, Bubba Ghosts. That was really And I did loud. it with the earplugs oh, in my earplugs ears. In. I'm proving a point this Prove season. Proving a point. <laughs> Prove a point. Um, we're so Not earplugs, earbuds. Go on. Same old. Same old jazz. We're so excited today. Um, today we have a very a first, a first ever for the New York Mystery Machine. We have an interview. Woo! Which is pretty crazy. Um, and the story of this interview is so fascinating. You guys remember a couple months ago, Christina led this amazing episode all about the Odyssey study group. That was episode 33. And you may also recall, recall. (laughs) You are from New York. You may also recall. You may also recall that while we were recording like an episode or two after that, in the middle of that episode, um, we kind of a message from someone who we talked about on the show on that cult show. And that person was uh, Spencer Schneider. He connected us with Esther Friedman. And the two of them were, were part of the Odyssey study group. Um, Spencer being part of the New York chapter, which he spoke, a, we, we, we spoke a lot about. Obviously, we're a New York podcast. Um, and then uh, Esther was part of the Boston group. And um, the two of them uh, agreed to chat with us uh, uh, for one of our episodes just about their experiences. Spencer has an all new book out called Manhattan Cult Story, which is available wherever you get your books, both online and in stores. Uh, and Esther has her own book that she's working on as well. That's just uh, a stone's throw away from from being uh, published as well. So um, we're just so excited to, to get into that before we do. Uh, as always, we thank all our patrons. If you're interested in supporting us, head on over to patreon.com slash Machine. The spiel of this one is going to be really short because we have a really, really full episode. Spencer and Esther really reveal uh, a really intense portrait of what life was uh, within the, the walls of these of these of this cult mm-hmm. and um, their experiences in it and getting out of it. Uh, what they've taken from it, and um, it's just really uh, an, an important listen. Well, we'd love to welcome to the show Spencer Schneider, Esther Friedman. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You guys you. are our are, are very first guests ah! on the New York Mystery Machine. And, wow. Um, yeah, and as we said in the intro, it's such a, a crazy thing happened. We've never had, uh, we've never done a story, and this we just wrapped up. We're, we're now in our second season. This is our second episode of season two, but throughout our whole first season, we never had anyone who we spoke about reach out. And yeah. so we literally were, were recording a different episode, Spencer, when you reached out to us. And we were mid-episode. And I was like, hey, <laughs> Spencer just reached out to us. Yeah. Let's let's make sure we, we acknowledge that yeah. later and, fig- and, and and make that happen. So we're so happy that this was able to happen and we were able to uh, to put this together. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so, um, yeah, just wanted to give you a chance to introduce yourselves first. Um, if I'll throw it to either of you, whoever wants to begin, to tell us a little about, about yourself. And um, oh. Yeah, Spencer, as the New Yorker, would you like to? <laughs> no, ladies no. first. Ladies, ladies first. first. Okay, well, um, I'm not sure what you all said on your, on your intro, but my name is Esther Friedman. I live outside of Boston. Um, I'm by trade a therapist and by passion a songwriter and um, uh, Spencer and I share a misadventure in the same crazy cult except mine was in the Boston area and his was in New York City. (laughs) So now I will hand you Spencer the baton. (laughs) Oh okay. I'm Spencer Schneider. Um, I'm a practicing attorney and I um, was in the uh, group that's commonly known as the Odyssey Study Group for 23 years. I got out about 10 years ago. And um, so I heard your podcast, I don't know, a few months back, and you were talking about yeah. it. Yeah. And I called you uh, and let you know um, that I wanted to chat with you. And uh, here I am. Happy to talk to you. How did you two yeah. meet since you were, um, you know, in Boston and New York, respectively, um, after, well, after you got out? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was via email. I mean, we have never actually been in the same physical space at the same time. <laughs> um, what do you remember, Spencer? I think we, we were on some thread together. Well, I mean, um, I never knew Esther when we were both in the cult. Esther was in the Boston group, um, which did not mix with the New York group. And mm-hmm. generally nobody ever within either 
city fraternized with anyone else, meaning we didn't talk to anyone outside of the group. So it's not yeah. unusual that I wouldn't know her. There were people who were in the group in New York who, who I never met. Okay. Esther, same I here. met. Right. And Esther met, Esther and I met because Esther had, after she escaped in, um, I guess, around 2010 or whenever, she started a blog about the cult and was probably, it was the second blog about the group. And hers was the first non-anonymous uh, blog about it. And so I reached out to her because, you know, her blog was very inspiring and helpful and gave information about about the cult. So that's how we met. And I was probably by email. And yeah, we haven't met. Yeah, Just, yeah uh, probably by email. I, I want to interject that I didn't even know about the New York group. Wow. I didn't know it existed. Yeah. Yeah. And my question for that is I just wrote myself a note and we're going to obviously talk a lot about the group and, and, and all of its structure. But yeah. was that by design that the chapters didn't know each other? Like that was, yeah. I mean, it feels very sure. specific. <laughs> yeah. For sure. I mean, you know, people from New York would pop in, but nobody explained. <laughs> I mean, it, it just when I start talking about it, it's so crazy, you know, to me. So I I always have to shake my head and be like, is this my life? But yeah, you know, we would be in what was called a class because I didn't actually know the, um, the title Odyssey Study Group when I started this group it was simply called school and right. the, the structure was a classroom and sometimes people would come into the class and suddenly be a guest including the cuckoo head nutcase um <laughs> you know but nobody said oh they're visiting us from new york city because there's a whole other <laughs> right you know, faction of school in new york so yeah i have so many questions about that but maybe <laughs> <laughs> um uh but i don't know if we want to go straight to all my questions about that very specifically if we want to talk a little bit about how you got involved first yeah, yeah. maybe as well maybe the, the like the spot. storytelling device you know like how did you begin is the best place to start yeah. um yeah so how did yeah. you how did you each become involved in in the 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 study the the group well all right so um Spencer and I just did this on another pod where we did a little <laughs> bit of a compare and contrast because um, it's interesting you know there are these similarities and there are these differences so for me I happened to be at a grocery store buying what I call breakup snacks because I was, you know, getting ready for a breakup and um, I was feeling sorry for myself and the woman standing next to me with her family started talking to me and, um, you know, it became kind of chaotic and we walked out together and when we were about to go to our respective cars, she said, you know, really enjoyed talking to you. We should get together sometime and we exchanged phone numbers. And she spent, you know, like, I'm guessing about a good three or four months just being a new friend, quote unquote, mm -hmm. air quotes. Um, and then at a certain point, because I was, you know, at a crisis point in my life, which we can talk about more later or not. Um, <laughs> um, she um, said, something to the effect of how would you like to meet other people i have these friends you know blah 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 but she never actually mentioned a group mm -hmm. so so it's just a circle of friends at that point yeah it's just this casual like we get together we discuss ideas you know kind of a thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so yeah that's my short st shortened story anyway um i'll answer yeah I, I, you know, this was a night, it was in 1989, I was 29. I was an attorney working in New York at a big corporate law firm. And I was, um, uh, you know, I was not a really spiritually minded or at all looking for any, anything specific or, you know, anything whatsoever. Um, uh, and uh, was befriended by uh, someone who uh, worked at a bar where my band was playing, I was in a band. And he showed great interest in me and wanted to talk and um, uh, about philosophical things. Mm -hmm. And um, he was highly educated. He went to Ivy League schools and we became friendly. And then one day he proffered uh, me to go to a uh, you know a secret meeting of an esoteric school. And I immediately thought it was a cult. I told him so. And then I felt bad for attacking his group and, you know, 
I was, the next thing I knew, I was going to this group uh, in the summer of 1989, and I left 23 years later. Wow. So that's one thing that's interesting, too, is that I tend to think of cults, and I hear in my brain, like, something spirituality-driven. And one thing that I haven't been able to quite wrap my head around is to what extent the study is a cult that is that does have that spiritual component, um, you know, and what to what extent it is a a cult that is really about like self help without that that spiritual religiosity. So I wonder if you could help my mind understand a bit more about that. Um, because one of the fascinating things is that there just is so little information out there by design, obviously, yeah. except for uh, your blog and and soon to be your books. Um, but yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of squishy, and maybe that's mm. why you don't understand. Um, yeah. I mean, the quote-unquote ideas all came from a school of, I don't know, another whatever. You know, some people yeah. aspire to it. Some people think it's bullshit. I think it's bullshit. But it's it's a school of thought called the Fourth Way. Mm-hmm. This was started um, in the early 1900s, came out of... Eastern Europe. Um, the guy who put it together is named Gurdjieff. Personally, again, I never knew about the fourth way. They just trotted out the ideas as though they owned them. So they mm. were like, you know, esoteric, mystical ideas handed down through an mm-hmm. oral teaching, you know, an ancient oral teaching. So oh, there was that component of spirituality, right? Mm-hmm. Like these are principles of you know, humanity in the universe. Um, Mm -hmm. But it wasn't like a Bible something called, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of talk about God, but, but we would talk about the Bible sometimes as a kind of philosophical teaching. Okay. um, And other, you know, other things like that. So um, I hope that clarifies a little bit. Um, yeah. But Spencer's, uh, you know, Spencer's experience of this in New York was probably very different than mine in Boston. Well, yeah, I mean, it was posed to me to be a group that talked about Gertrude. And again, I I started many, you know, decades before Esther did, but it was, you know, and, and at that point they were talking about it as a as a Gertrude group. But I think later on, because the internet. Uh, was out and people could look these things up. They stopped talking about Gurdjieff mm-hmm. to prospective members, um, but it, it did follow the philosophy of Gurdjieff, which is a suspicious doctrine in the first place. It's kind of hinky. It doesn't. It's not really much of anything. It's very um, arcane and isolated. And you know, Gurdjieff and Espensky were charlatans at best. Yeah. So, yeah. There's a yeah. lot of word salad in Gurdjieff. <laughs> you know yeah um so um, yeah so then so for 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 both sections of the group and i guess the group as a whole what was the the main selling point that they were kind of like shelving out to you guys to to invite you in um the main selling point um well sorry i have to kind of nudge my brain back there (laughs) it's all good it's all good um you know i think for me because i was having a pretty rough time adulting i would Mm. say pretty much failing in every you know every every checkbox it was like oh that's not happening you know relationships career saving money getting a home you know Mm -hmm. um what the selling point really was was um the woman who recruited me was talking about these ideas as though they're really helpful Mm. and we support each other and um you know so the thought of having this community and perhaps ideas that could pull me out of my morass of quote you know i guess i'm gonna Mm -hmm. self-described failure you know was was appealing to me and Mm -hmm. and so i think it's maybe somewhat different for each person who gets recruited that was my experience you know um there's an initial request that you come to a meeting that is not much of an ask to come to a meeting. The only yeah. ask that they had was that you keep it secret and quiet, which I thought was a little odd, but I didn't really mind it because it, it, it just sounded intriguing because I wanted to know what it was. I was just really more curious than anything else. Mm. So I don't think, you know, and I'm a very suspicious person by nature. 
Um, and I really did was concerned that it might be a cult. So I was, there was no major promise or anything other than it's interesting. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the guy who I recruited liked, they brought along a very attractive woman at the, at the meeting and the, the sense would be, oh, there'd be more like her and I'm 29 and I like to meet women, have sex and do things like that because I'm a guy and they knew these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm not a per, I'm not like, you know, no, a, you're a normal human being. <laughs> you're a normal, guy. You're a a normal bit, human but, being. You know, everybody likes to, you know, yeah. Right, and, of course. Um, I, they figured that would be a good thing for me and it worked. So, but I, that was just to go to a meeting. I mean, that was not yeah. a big deal. And it was a one month experiment. So it wasn't asking much, but yeah. you know what, what I, the only reason I went back um, beyond the one month was because for one, I didn't want to be, I just, I don't know. I just, there were a couple of things. One is I, a crisis happened in my life and they were very supportive. So that really was what led to it. And mm. it was a big crisis and they were extremely supportive. And that really was the, the, the element. That makes a difference. So support is what I'm hearing in both cases, yeah, yeah. whatever it looks like, whether yeah. that's community or support. Yeah, and, and for when I get to it, so it's so fascinating because when Christine and I recorded this episode, there was so many moments while she was talking about the group, and I was like, God, this sounds like church. Like yeah. this sounds like religious religion organization, mm -hmm. right? Like where people mm -hmm. go to a place for honestly a bunch of different reasons. Why right? you, you find yourself in a church for so many different reasons, but I think a lot of people always falls down to community and support. Yeah, and I think that's how. Yeah. Which are like basic human needs. Which, so are, like which are basic human needs. So like when people, like, is like so when people are, are, are talking about, well, how do you end up in a cult? I'm like, well, because as human beings, we're looking for support. We're looking for community. And so I think yeah. um, so often, I remember saying during the episode, I'm like, so often people are like, um, you know, j j just slanderized for fo falling for cults. I'm like, no, it's like, if you're a part of organized religion, it's very much the same structure where it's like you're yeah. in that seeking something and mm -hmm. and trusting the people around you and trusting. And I think it also takes a lot of that. Yeah. You know? yeah. Even with suspicion, because I'm also a very suspicious, curious person. Like I'm very curious, but also like I don't I don't super trust things. Yeah. But because I'm curious, <laughs> it just leads me to try to, to find out more and more. So Spencer, right. when you had when you had said that, I was like, but Oh, we I totally were, get that. We were invited by people we knew mm. that we we didn't may not have known them that well but yeah we liked them and they showed mm. great interest in us mm. and this was a very yeah. deliberate part of the process of recruiting yes. whereby we were targeting a very specific demographic with a very specific message of a, a great deal of interest in them support and the promise of you know um of of an at least an intellectual pursuit and friendships and yeah. the more curious I think uh, and, and also I will say you know uh, there are looking for people who are um, um, you know a little down on their luck mm. yeah a little vulnerable you know mm. I, I there's just so much to respond to here so I'm gonna try to <laughs> pull out some bullet points um, um, first of all, Adam, I think what you're saying is right at the heart of the matter and every because after I left, I was obsessively researching cults and yeah. human nature and deception that every cult book talks about exactly that. Our human nature is that we need to be accepted. We need to be mm. embraced. You know, we need to be part of community. Um, it's metabolic, right? Like we yeah. would not have survived. <laughs> during caveman days, we wouldn't have survived, right? right. So, so that's really hardwired into us. Um, I think when Spencer said that they don't, they don't start with a heavy ask, mm. that was very deliberate in both cases. I mean, my, my first ask was, you know, how would you like to meet some friends? And that went to try a free five week experiment, which sounds mm -hmm. kind of like innocuous, you know, I'll check it out for five weeks and if right. i don't like it i'll leave yeah what do you have um, to lose it's five weeks Meh. right right it's a summer um, <laughs> right yeah right you know exact that's exactly what i thought what do i have to lose you know it's not gonna hurt and of course it did but yeah. that's <laughs> to be discussed later um and then the way trust is co-opted you know so um the woman who recruited me spent a good three or four months cultivating a friendship 
And when she introduced me to her friends, I mm -hmm. was like, oh, I trust Lisa. She's been really great and kind. <laughs> she would never mislead me, um, you know. Right. So um, that's pretty common in cults. So I know, I know from, you know, we talked about this in the pre, in the other episode in season one, uh, there is this, this um, extreme secrecy, right? And so we talk a bit about language as well as being part of that. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about some of that word salad, about some of those. So I'm thinking specifically, Esther, you wrote that, um, that, you know, uh, secret is seedy or, or, you know, feels weird, but private is exclusive, yeah. right? And so yeah. what are those ways that um, even as you might start to learn some of the things you're like, eh, I don't know about that. But like, what are the, what are the ways they, they, they were able to spin that into something yeah. that like, well, I, I think I know what, all right, I understand what they're saying. That could be appealing still. Um, yeah. Well, you know, this kind of co-opting of language is also very, very yeah. common in cults. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that the example that you bring up is perfect because when Lisa asked me if I wanted to meet her friends, um, she didn't say this is a secret group. She said, don't tell anyone it's private just for you, right? So mm. private, you know, sounds exclusive just mm -hmm. for me, sounds exclusive. I felt pretty special mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then when I met the, the lead guy here in Boston whose name was Robert I don't mm -hmm. I don't know if he's still even involved in the group anymore but he repeated that word for word after it, it you know after extending his free five-week experiment invitation right but please don't tell anyone about this is private just for you and then he tagged on something to the effect of we don't just invite anyone. So, you know, I felt pretty special, right? Yeah. Um, so that's just one example, you know, of co-opting language. And when I left and obsessively thought about this and researched and all of that, I thought, you know, the difference between secret and private is secret is something that gets hoisted on you. Mm. You know, private is something that you decide, I don't want to talk about this with anybody or with only with certain people. It's a personal decision. So. Right. Right. That's interesting. That element of choice that gets involved, right? Mm. An invitation to yeah. keep it private versus a demand. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll say it now. You both, you both have written books about it. Um, Spencer, yours is currently out. Um, Hand Cult Story. It's available anywhere. You, you buy your books. We're going to mention it a bunch more times throughout the uh, throughout the episode. Uh, and as we know that you're you're you wrote your book and you're still in editing phase, but you're that's coming out soon as well. So we we both got had both a chance to to read a little bit about it. Christina did a heavy amount of research about the day to day. But what was the the day to day of you know being a part of the group? Um, what did that consist of? Yeah. Um, Spencer, you want to jump on that? You go first. Uh, I'll okay. respond afterwards if if okay. there's anything to add. All right, so um, this is a question that's always a little hard for me to answer because at first it's two nights a week, right? Mm -hmm. You know, first it's like you go to, <laughs> for me it was Tuesdays and Thursdays and you show up around 6.30 and everyone has to, you find out when you get there, observe 10 minutes of silence when you first arrive because it sets the tone. Um, mm -hmm. And then there is a half an hour of some kind of physical body work, Tai Chi, which I'm going to put air quotes around because it was a bit questionable. And then this crazy thing called body work, which you could just just picture a Grateful Dead concert, you know, a bunch of, <laughs> you know, which frankly was directed by some higher up, a teacher, mm. you know, because they're mm. the the um, hierarchy was that there were younger students, there were older students, mm. there were junior teachers, there were teachers, and then there was Robert. That right. was the, the Boston branch. Um, and then um, you would go sit down in silence, by the way, because there was no unnecessary talking, which uh, obviously you don't find out about until you start How's the that? class. <laughs> um, and um, the teachers would direct the class either by bringing up ideas to discuss or, you know, um, we would share self-observations were basically, mm. you know, like Soden confessions that were mm. very structured, you know, um, and then you would go home and then you'd come back Thursday night and do it again. Now, the thing is, 
the longer you're in, the more assignments and requirements and um, projects outside of the group you have, and you're not allowed to talk about them because it's private just for you. Right. So it, it you know, surreptitiously kind of um, seeps out and sneaks into your daily life and starts inserting between um, you and your normal life. And in the meantime, of course, you're working and people who have families have those obligations um, or you know, like Spencer was in a band, so other passions, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of what I like to call the slow boil, you know, mm. where at least it was here. I My impression was that New York was a little more heavy handed, but that's a good reason to hand the baton over to you, Spencer. Yeah, we had very uh, different experiences because um, I was in the group for 23 years. Mm. And it was a very different um, experience because my whole life ended up being, you know, part of this cult. It was not just two nights a week. I mean, it started out going to a meeting, uh, you know, meetings two nights a week from six o'clock till midnight. And really, you know, uh, that was pretty much it. And there were a couple of other obligations that you had um, that they asked you to to do. such as you know, uh, doing various exercises related to Gurdjieff and and you know minor things, checking in with uh, the people who were called sustainers, who were basically mm-hmm. like proctors who checking in with you. But basically, beyond that, there wasn't much to do. But um, after a year, they started asking us to do recruiting um, to bring in other people because um, they were constantly trying to bring in you know other people. And, you know, uh, I spent 40 hours a week on that. Um, wow. So it was a tremendous amount of, of my time and money. And then, you know, as, as even though we weren't allowed to, you know, spend time with each other outside of the group, if the leader, whose name was Sharon Gans, who passed away last year or two years ago, if she gave you permission, we could, you know, fraternize and hang out. And that led to a lot of people actually getting married. Hmm. And she would arrange marriages um, and mine. And I had, uh, you know, an arranged marriage myself. So, you know, that was a day to day. You know, she was in the cult, too. So that was a day to day involvement in the cult. So my life is wrapped up into that. And then also I worked. I'm a lawyer um, and I was a general counsel for somebody who was in the cult. So there were, you know, my work, you know, when I went home, everything I was surrounded by was the cult so it was a very immersive experience for me even though i only went two nights a week to the group right. you know but everything else was part of it that so is a lot interesting. of people like a lot of people were like that in new york there were lots and lots of people and in boston as well um mm-hmm. were completely wrapped up into it and that i'm sure if esther stayed longer they would have liked for her to get divorced and maybe meet somebody else in the group and you know, yeah. become more wrapped up in it. And those yeah. those are the real long timers wow. in the group. Yeah. It's almost like I think of cults and I think of like compounds out no, west, no you know. But it, it was, but it's that same idea of like insulation, right? Because yeah, you yeah. all your social network, your business network, your your relationships are all somehow just immersed in this one set of ideas. So it's almost like they've managed to create yeah. a, a a compound within a city. Yeah, well, it was a compound in New York City. Yeah. yeah. You know, I met somebody, a, a, a cop once, and he said, oh, this is kind of like these secret poker games that go on throughout the city, like Fight Club <laughs> and, yeah. you know, like in Rounders, you know, they have these mm-hmm. secret things. And that's exactly what it's like. I mean, they were, yeah. um, we, we operated uh, with great fear and with great paranoia. Um, mm-hmm. And that's part of why it was secret, because the leaders were, you know, committing crimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were criminals, um, which we can get into whenever you want. But they, yeah, yeah, they go for part. it. Yeah, go for <laughs> it. Like what? What? You know, what was my you first question? Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I sorry. I just want to dovetail before we before we uh, <laughs> drill into that, which is Spencer, <laughs> Spencer's got to take that because I was, you know, I always had a toe out the door, so I never was privy to the crimes. But, um, <laughs> but. You know, the, I think the crazy thing is you have to realize that not only do they create a, their compound, this invisible compound, which literally in Boston we called the invisible world, every person is imprisoned pretty much in their own mind. You know, mm. you're kind of locked into this weird circular, crazy, false belief system. 
Right. Um, yeah. And it just, to me, when I got out, when I started looking at it, I, I, I was like, Jesus, we are so impressionable, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was miserable and it still took me two years to get out, mm-hmm. even though, I mean, trust me, my brain was split in half, constantly arguing about whether or not to stay, but that's the prison of right. cultic, um, abusive psychological tactics. Yeah, so. I, I remember. Yeah, I mean, I remember when Christina was telling me the story. Like the the thing that popped up to my my main my mind first was on um, that HBO documentary, uh, The Vow, which talked about the Nexium cult, which illuminated a lot of stuff that was happening with Nexium. Um, and um, but just I remember saying to a lot of people when I watched The Vow, the very first episode of that show, the director is brilliant because they just talk about the group in a way that by the end of the episode, you're like, huh, this sounds like a really cool group to be a part of. And they're like, oh shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's smart. That's why it works. Like, that's why it works yep. because that's, why it that's, works. that's how, what people are experiencing. And so the director, you know, the director of that show really did a, 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 a really masterful way of taking the teachings, taking the environment, taking the community, the like-mindedness and all the positives, quote unquote, about the group and displaying it to us, the viewer, in a way that gets us being like, I don't know, I kind of, I mean, I, I, I do want better leadership skills. I yeah. do want, I do like yeah. being with like-minded people, right? And mm-hmm. so then yeah. by the end of that first episode, you're like, oh shit. And then it goes, the next episode's like, and there it is. And here's the issues with it all. And so yeah. um, one thing you had mentioned too before, Spencer, was the, the, the financial piece of it. Uh, what were the financial um, asks of the group? Well, they were extensive, but mm-hmm. they were broken down into monthly amounts and not everybody was asked for the same amount. You, you were asked to give more and more as you stayed longer. So I think when, when I started, it was like $300 a month and it was all cash, which says everything. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, and and eventually, I figured out sort of by the end I was getting closer to you know seven eight a month, but it was wow. broken down into like different fees that you paid at different times for different reasons. Right. And so you never really added it up, but it was a lot. It was a lot of money. Um, but I didn't miss it terribly because, you know, I, I make a reasonable salary and I think most people in the group do. And that's the kind of people they're looking for are people mm. who are, um, you know, uh, have good professions and, you know, have good income and don't have to, you know, scrounge and that are trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, you guys would be perfect candidates for it. You would. Except for, for one sure. problem. That you have a podcast and then <laughs> that would immediately exclude you. That'd be a red flag. You'll probably end up talking about it. But, uh, <laughs> We're going to share all of the <laughs> all of the teachings right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah. So that's that was that was the money part. That's the yeah. money piece. But there's another piece if I could add to that. Please. Pat, yeah. Which is that um, they demanded not only money and they didn't pay taxes on it, and that's a federal that's a crime. But it's also a crime to make people work for free. And, you know, there's levels of that. It could be, you know, a felony, it could be forced labor. And to some degree, I feel that it was forced labor. We were asked to do so much for them. You know, yeah. the recruiting was, you know, like I said, 40 hours uh, for months on, on end. Um, there were these huge projects of building out um, Sharon's property, the leader's property, the places where we met. Sometimes we were asked build out spaces for other people there was a constant constant amount of physical work and also people gave things of value to the Mm. leaders um other things so that's that's money yeah 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 it's time i'd be curious to hear more about some of these building projects so like when you when you look online there's like some some uh you know mysterious allusions to you know the the, the gans property upstate or like one out west i think too um but it sounds like you you were possibly a part of some of those building projects um what were those experiences like and how did they tie that into the the teachings in a way that like it made sense that you would go and do this this labor for for them uh, Esther, did you do work on any of that stuff? I did not. I did not. I never got into um, 
they, they didn't they didn't invite me to into that privileged part of the, the work um, right. so spencer i will i, I defer I to did you. a lot i mean I, I went to montana for you know a couple of decades every summer for a couple of weeks and um you know it was heavy duty you know manual labor and dangerous and you know people got seriously injured oh, wow. um and um you know, we were building, um, uh, we built this huge um, uh, structure out there, which was used, which was, which was to be used as a theater. Um, we did a lot of plumbing work, a lot of maintenance, we built fences. And then there were projects in the city, you know, where we had, a, we had a meeting place, a loft on 25th Street, and you had, you know, dozens of people working, you know, till three in the morning, standing on ladders, painting, you know, hammering. This is, and these are like, you know, people who would put on a suit in the morning and go to work. Mm. I and mean, it was fucking crazy. It was insane. Yeah. But the, the, the reason we did it was, and, and, you know, quote unquote, willingly, not willingly, but we were coerced into it because we were really under the belief that this was all, you know, for the sake of our own personal evolution, our own mm. spiritual um, uh, improvement. And that to explain that it gets into a lot of stuff, which is probably beyond the scope of this conversation, but it's basically that unless you want me to describe it, Esther could probably describe that too. But basically, we were made to believe it was in our own best interest to do it. And it was almost, in fact, a privilege to be asked to do these things. Yeah, for sure. And it's a way of showing gratitude to the leaders. And, you know, um, this is what Nexium did also. I mean, they do the same thing. Um, they all do this same thing. Um, yeah, this is very common to cults, you know, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. common cult practices here. Well, I'm I'm curious about any more crimes you want to reveal. Yeah, it's yeah. the honest thing. Like, I'm, I'm just like the crimes. <laughs> you mentioned right, crimes. So, I don't know how so to so elegantly get to the crimes. <laughs> I mean, we're already talking <laughs> about the crimes, but like, I'm, you know, I do. I also want to hear about the crimes, mm. Christina. But before we hear about more crimes, let's take a quick break. Get the ads on in, and then we'll come back with Esther and Spencer and Crimes. For Crime Time. Crime Time. We'll be right back. The New York Mystery Machine is brought to you in part by listeners like you. That's right. Head on over to our Patreon, and for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep the pod growing. By joining, you can access a whole bunch of cool stuff, such as mini-episodes, swag, exclusive playlists, and more. Head to www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine to find out more and become a patron. That's www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine and join our ever-growing community today. Okay, and we're back with Esther Friedman and Spencer Schneider and all the crimes. It sounds like you're invited into certain experiences where this is going on. Um, but certainly, like, there are uh, bits of, of lots of, you know, questionable, at the very least, behaviors throughout, right? I've heard about um, uh, arranging, you know, children to be adopted between families depending you know then there's the issue of um you know all this coerced labor um there you know I, i'd be curious to hear a bit more about some of those some of those things that are happening um that we may not know about just you know if our listeners are uh googling and you know soon to get your book yeah, yeah. um <laughs> what are some of those those things you can tease us with um that we'll learn more about I mean, I, I'll let you go, uh, Esther, and I could fill in, you know, from okay. personal experience what I what I saw, and then you can say what you saw. Yeah. Um. In terms of crimes, like I said, I I never really got waltzed up the ladder, so I didn't I didn't witness anything like mm. that. Um. However, um, with one exception, and this is a really silly exception. Um. So every holiday season one of the many things that we did, um, which does fall under the category of work for school, doing this for your teachers and your sustainers, is that we threw 
a Christmas party. Mm -hmm. And the Christmas party was very involved and very detailed and would basically hijack your season from late November up through some point in December um, because you're still going to class, you're still getting assignments, you're still working, you're still doing everything else that you have to do in life. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, obviously you're going to start neglecting people outside of your life um, and, you know, a whole other rabbit hole is what this does to families, but you can imagine, right? Right. Um, So because this is part of our evolutionary pursuit, you know, um, they were asking us to do things. And at first it starts out kind of innocuous. Like at first I was decorating, um, I was making the decorations, you know, Mm -hmm. I was doing drawings and paintings um, and, you know, being part of musical presentations um, and setting up the space. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, Everything had to be of the finest quality. You know, there was this like pressure because it's a gift for your teachers and your sustainers and they've done so much for you. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> one of the more, and, and every year it became, the demands became a little more questionable. So my favorite example of this is something I call the tree scammer because one of the um, assignments was to go out and solicit a tree donation. and. You know, we're, I was paying $350 a month. Right. You know, they, they could afford a tree, right? But, <laughs> but, <laughs> and a nice so, tree at that. <laughs> a really nice tree. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when I, when I was given the assignment, of course, like everyone else, you know, it's custom made that you're going to push back. I was like, listen, I'm just going to buy a tree. And I was told, oh, well, that's because, you know, it was in school language, which isn't going to make sense to you. But essentially, I was told I was being selfish because I wanted to buy the tree, mm. which is a very fine example of gaslighting, right? Yeah. Um, Gosh. You know, and so I went out and I told the lie. And the lie was something like, you know, I think I think that year we were throwing a party for a nursery school. And, you know, oh. so, so some kind tree merchant was like, Oh, of course I'll give you a donation. That's wonderful, right? <laughs> so, oh wow, um, you know, so it's a silly thing. I got the tree, I brought it back, I got all kinds of kudos for it, and then the next day I woke up and I was like, I don't want a tree scam, you know, which right. <laughs> felt terrible. But right. you know, what is that? It's fraud, right? Right, like, right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, it's thirty bucks. It's not a huge fraud, but it's like it's the seeding of yeah. um, a loyalty test. Will you do right. this for us? Yeah. Right. It's the ethics of it all. Right. 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 Yeah. Can we trust yeah. you? Like this small little thing. It's like it's a, it's a thirty dollar tree, but like, yeah. where does that thirty dollar yeah. tree turn into? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What does it grow into? Which I think Spencer can speak to more. There, there were three. I mean, I would say there was at least two. There were two types of crimes in New York: financial and um, physical. I'll start with the financial. I just alluded to the um, tax evasion. Um, Sharon pulled in over a million dollars a year in cash. Um, she did take some amounts in, ca- in check from some people so that they could actually put in some tax returns, but most of it with, was, was uh, cash and it all went to her and whoever else she decided, although she had other leaders working for her. I don't believe any of them were paid. Um, um, she did um, also, uh, when you get that amount of that kind of cash, you need to clean it up so you can use it because you know a million dollars sitting in the bank is not gonna do you much good. So they had very uh, you know, sophisticated ways of laundering the money so that it could ultimately use for Sharon's a very uh, privileged lifestyle. And mm-hmm. one of the things that they used it on was real estate. And she had a significant um, portfolio of properties around the country, including in Mexico, that were luxury properties that were often in other people's names. And she used nominees to own these properties. That's illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's one reason to say secret, you know? Right. And it's one reason not to give your full name when you go to a group and you know, not know there's a Boston group or a New York group, less you know about everybody else going, the better it is for her business. And it was a business that was really her motivation. Um, And there were other things of value that she received, like, um, you know, I know she got cars, uh, a a boat, um, and then it gets into the other other kind of 
crimes, which are, which are physical. And, you know, forcing people to do work is not a good thing. That's illegal. Forcing people or coercing people to have sex, that's also not a good thing. Mm. That's also a crime. And I saw it happen time and time again, where people were encouraged, really coerced to have, you know, women were coerced into having sex with men. It wasn't, wow. it couldn't really, it was hard. It's hard to say no um, in these circumstances where you're so, um, and this doesn't happen when you first join, but when you're so wrapped up and there's, there's a group of, of people and a young woman has said, you know, why don't you have, you, you need to have sex because your life is not good. And, you know, that's why you're complaining about your husband, go sleep with so-and-so. And this was an occurrence that happened from time to time again. And, um, you know, the adoption thing, it is legal to have private adoptions, mm -hmm. but it's, a, it's not legal to do it and then get paid for it. And that's kind of one of the things that Sharon did. And there wow. were a lot of adoptions. Really? And then there were things that, I don't know if they're so much illegal, but they're more Ill, immoral, which mm -hmm. are, you know, like these arranged marriages and breaking up marriages and, um, you know, imposing people's wills on, um, on child custody situations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like today, like we have, you know, the Supreme Court on abortion, you know, knocking down this very important right. And the right is based upon the concept of privacy, you know, which is integral which to everybody's life. You know, the, it's not so much privacy in the sense of, you know, um, you know, you can't know about what I'm doing. You know, it's really about choice and the right to make your own decisions about important things. And one thing that this cult did, and she, you know, Esther could speak to other cults, but she's an expert on cults in general. You know, this group that Sharon had no, no, knew of no boundaries. And she took delight, great delight in making these kinds of very intimate choices for people and would frequently talk about sick people's sex, sex lives, their marriages in front of, you know, 60 people. Right. People talk about child rearing and um, and whatnot. There had been some just to close the sec the crime thing down was that there were some allegations of um, you know, rape by one of the other leaders that happened before my time. So I can't really speak right. to that, but I believe it. Yeah. So that's it. My crime. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just like, <laughs> and this is going on right here in Manhattan. And yeah, and for... Boston has crazy shit too. But I just yeah. think Esther was lucky. I didn't get exposed to the worst of the worst. You know, that's I good. think I always had a toe out the door. They kind of knew that and they weren't going to waltz me further into the inner circle um, yeah I, so. I i feel like you know we spoke a bunch about sharon just like you know who she is in the world and was in the world right mm -hmm. just, yeah um, but just that idea of that absolute power i mean over people's yeah. lives that just like yeah. the absolute control that one human being can have to be able to talk about people's sex and marriage and all those things and you know without any any restraint um it's just like a new it's like a different level and so yeah it, it just, it's fascinating well, she, you know she was just as malignant as keith ranieri you yeah. know mm. she, <laughs> i mean i i wasn't exposed to sharon that much thankfully um but when i was i just thought who is this crazy horrible person yeah. <laughs> Because I wasn't used to that, you know, and Boston was a little more insidious, a little mm -hmm. more covert, you know, it wasn't like banging you over the head. So, mm -hmm. um, and you had mentioned a couple of times after that you you always had like one foot out the door, you know, was that from the jump and and what kind of led, you know, to that, you know, always being on your radar? Well, that's such a good question and I, I try to speak to it concisely, I always was aware of my cognitive dissonance, mm. even when, and I even, I've actually written a, a whole show based around this because um, as a songwriter, I was like, I have a soundtrack, you know, but I had a camp of starry-eyed believers who were, you know, 200% in, right, and then a camp of inner skeptics, and this cognitive dissonance was constantly yanking my brain back mm. and forth, but in the beginning, you know, it seems so innocuous, 
in the beginning, it was kind of like, this is weird. You know, the skeptics were like, this is a little weird. Why is this woman talking to me in the grocery store? Because in Boston, that is not typical. <laughs> um, and, um, but it wasn't, um, it didn't strike me as uh, damaging. Um, and the longer you're in these groups, the more the starry-eyed believer camp can justify things that start getting worse, you know, and start not feeling so good, but there must be some reason for it. And my teachers know more than I do, you know. Um, so I was constant. I was aware of that throughout the five years. Um, and the weird thing is, as is with everything in cults, um, you know, that was the damage that I experienced was my brain really being ripped to shreds, right? But at the end, my cognitive dissonance is what saved me because I couldn't do it anymore. You know, I mean, I pair it up with my husband confronting me, but I was at a point where I was like, I can't function. And I wasn't functioning. You know, I couldn't, I, I didn't know my ass from my elbows for, for real. And, um, <laughs> and, um, but, you know, when I, when I realized like this, when I admitted to myself, I want to say, this feels terrible. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually way worse off than I was when I first started this group. Mm. All of a sudden, that cognitive dissonance just went, the volume mm -hmm. went down. <laughs> and, um, you know, all of a sudden, clarity returned and I started seeing my experience at like a movie playing out and going, you know, what, what the fuck have I been doing for the last right. five years? Yeah. You know? So, so I hope that answers your question. Yeah. 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 And my follow yeah. to that really, you know, to offer both of you is what was the, what was the tipping point that made you realize, okay, gotta go, gotta go. Like, what was that moment, that aha moment? There was like, okay, now it's no yeah. more. You know, for me, it kind of started when they wanted me to recruit because that was so distasteful. And mm -hmm. one, it was distasteful in and of itself. Like, I've never been one to believe in, that proselytizing is a good idea. It's really offensive. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, you know, I, it, it really, that's when my cognitive dissonance was at fever pitch because I didn't want to do it and I felt like, you know, the starry-eyed believers were like, oh, you're being selfish and this is going to help you grow. And what if the person in the grocery store, you know, needs school to like come up with the solution for climate change, you know, right. um, it, it was so loud. Um, and then um, I was, my functioning was going downhill more and more. I mean, I had friends outside of the group still who were telling me, are you okay? <laughs> like we are worried. Um, then my husband confronted me, and then really the tipping point was when, after he confronted me, and of course I went back to the teachers, and I was like, I don't know what to do. You know, they said, or Robert sent down this message to tell your husband to mind his own business, and I was like, that's not going to happen because I won't have a, I won't have a marriage. You know, and I, I mean, we're talking about the guy who sat next to me in hospice while my dad was dying. I was like, you're not, you're not fucking with this. So mm -hmm. that was like my deal breaker there. I, um, I go through it um, in my book because it's, it, it, I was there for such a long time and there were a whole series of events that led to it. But um, I would say just to describe it in the clearest way was that the sense of betrayal Mm. that I, I really felt that these people who I felt were my best friends, although I'd been very unhappy for a while and, and didn't really know how to get out and didn't know if I could or whatnot. Not. When I felt betrayed by them, um, by Sharon and the others, that was it. And so I kind of woke up out of the whole thing, you know, mm. and um, it was still very hard to leave because I had so many connections in my marriage and my business and um, kind of my whole world was, you know, wrapped up in this whole group. So these were very strong betrayals I got involved into my family life, uh, the divorce that I had, and my business. I'm a lawyer. I was, there was some real potential consequences for me, and I had to make a move to leave. I also revealed the secret to somebody, you know, oh. and that's a whole thing. And that made a big difference when I spoke, about, spoke up about it. And then, you know, I was also having a nervous breakdown and, and um, needed to get out. And I did. And it yeah. wasn't easy. And it, it was it, it got very hard when I got out. 
but I, you know, got it back together. And, mm. you know, everybody, anybody can get out. It's not, not impossible. Mm. There's hope. Yeah, that I can say. I mean, I know people who left groups after four decades, started over, have great lives now, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, you know what, I wanted to add one more thing about a deal breaker. Um, when I started being trained to recruit, that's when I learned that that whole in encounter with um, my initial recruiter was scripted. Like mm. all of that was <sighs> protocol. Wow, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I, I thought, what the fuck? Yeah, it's like seeing <laughs> the, the man behind the curtain in a way. Um, yeah, 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 that tied into feeling betrayed as well because I realized how much she manipulated me and mm -hmm. I had trusted her, you know, so. Yeah, and that, and it's that thing of when there's one lie, whereas there are, I mean, there's so many, right? There, that was one, yeah. and, and it happened at the very beginning, like the, 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 the very second your relationship mm -hmm. with this group started, it was built on a lie. Yeah. And so yep. where are all the other lies? And like, I, yep. I assume they just start to reveal themselves one by one by one. You're like, oh. yep. and, then you, and then you see them, you, you yeah. see them and you're like, oh, there they are. Yeah. When you, when you, you know, so you, you left, you got out. I imagine that there's a lot of healing that takes place um, and is perhaps ongoing mm -hmm. um, is, you know, you both ended up writing books is that part of that process um what got you to that uh the, the point where you're like you know what this is this is the next step i'm going to write about, I have to this. Write about this yeah. and so your blog was out first though right like that you yeah. kind of were the first one to start like actually documenting and, and putting this out on the internet of what's happening well there was a site before mine which was called esoteric freedom that ch helped me sure. as well that site is now gone um because of some legal you know, cultic maneuvering, right? Mm -hmm. um, so her, the woman who started, who built that site was the first, really. Gotcha. Um, and then Rick Ross had a page. Are you guys familiar with Rick Ross? He's- um, Name is he's familiar, a, maybe. Yeah, he's he's a rather, I mean, in the world of, uh, in the cultiverse, as we like to call it, he's, <laughs> he's kind of a rock star. Um, I, I think he may be based in New York as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he had a website with a page about OSG that a lot of people had contributed to. So, yeah, so I had the blog out and then sometimes people would say to me that you have a book here. And I really felt very clueless about the process of book writing and publishing. And, and a friend of mine who worked in publishing sat down and I mean, she, we actually had a like a talk of she was like, you should really turn this blog into a book. But yes, the process of writing, I believe is what restored my ability to think. And I, I gotta tell you that I was, you know, writing journals at the age of four and five. So when I got to the end of my days in school, I couldn't write and it was the biggest mm. loss, you know, because it just was a thing that had been with me for my entire life. So taking back that writing voice was, Mm. extremely healing for one um putting it out on the internet because you know after all the secrecy was also extremely healing it was like i'm not keeping your fucking secrets mm -hmm. um and then the book to me it started to become i'm gonna call it the gentle souls revolution because it started to become about um you know uh well it's got kind of three sections. It's a little overly ambitious, but you know there are these memoir-ish um, scenes that I write mm -hmm. about. There's the research I did after, and then there's the section about. And this is how I restored my sanity, mm. my authentic self, took mm -hmm. back my voice, um, and it's really aimed towards people who, you know, un unlike Spencer, I was pretty naive and you know i was uh, one who you know has always been very idealistic and um tended to believe in everyone's goodness first and there are a lot of people out there like that and you get battered around by life that's why mm -hmm. i like i want to this book is for them you know um so that's i hope that gives you enough information Absolutely, yeah. yeah yeah um i i wrote the book because um i just felt like it was important to tell the story it had been secret for so long and it affected you know so many thousands of people who passed through this group 
and nobody ever talked about it. I mean, Esther had a blog about it and I started a blog, but you know, the real details about it needed to be told. So I started writing it and um, I didn't really get very far, but um, I, I wrote an article that was in East Magazine, which I think you read. Mm. Um, and uh, um, from that, it led to the, the you know, meeting people who were interested in, in, in my writing a book. And um, that was it, you know, and I was very lucky to find, you know, a really great publisher. And, you know, um, I write for a living. I'm a lawyer, so I'm always, mm -hmm. it's just a different style of writing, but it's the same thing. It's really somewhat, somewhat different style, but it's really just telling a story, although it's a very personal story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was, it was a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of fun. I, I think, you know, we had the opportunity of, of, of reading the book before it was published and, um, I mean, oh. it's really just fascinating stuff from the article, from the blog to the books to, to the to the whole oh, okay, to the whole thing. And I think that it's it doesn't serve just as regarding both of your works. You know, they don't just serve as um, memoirs of what happened, but it also just serves as inspiration and hope to to the next generation who get wrapped in these things. Because mm -hmm. I think this isn't good. this isn't the first group. It won't be the last group. Yeah. It, yeah new names new new stuff same old same old traps and i think that it's so important and valuable to for, for people to to read these stories to not only for themselves but for people they may know mm -hmm. i think so often people do know folks in in these groups and don't know how to communicate with them mm -hmm. yeah and it's also become so valuable to be like look these are people who have went through it mm -hmm. and you just need to know you know you, you you need to know a you're not alone and b that there are, are tools and ways and roadmaps out mm -hmm. and um and really smart people who are who are have done the work to help you get there and so um i i, I really appreciate the you know both work and, mm -hmm. and i will will we're gonna put a bunch of you know information in our socials all week just about uh your book spencer again it's manhattan cult story um it's available wherever you buy your books whether it's online and bookstores and uh and uh, we, we highly encourage uh, everyone to, to pick it up. And it's just a really, really important read. Uh, yeah. So just as, as we wrap up today, um, if there's anyone listening to this show today who, who is either a, a, a pinky toe into the pool of, mm -hmm. of organizations like this or in the pool of organizations like this, what what advice would you have for them? You really have to look out for certain things like um, like inconsistency, mm. you know, um, for example, uh, you know, Lisa told me, I, I, how would you like to meet a bunch of friends? It sounded super casual, right? Mm -hmm. And it was not at all. <laughs> when I got there, there were rules, mm. you know, there was an expectation that we'd be on time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think looking out for that and also, I guess even before that, if you feel like something's wrong, like if you get a gut instinct that something's not right, do mm -hmm. not disregard that. Because mm. going back to that question about, you know, what me always having a toe out the door, if I had listened to my own cognitive dissonance after a month, I would have saved myself a lot of time and money. You know, if mm. I'd listened to like the tight tension in my throat or feeling a little bit nauseous or the hairs raising in the back of my mm. neck. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and your body's going to respond to those physical signals, right. <laughs> you know, and your head's going to start yanking you around. These are all signals. Something's not right, <laughs> you know, right. so pay attention to that. I guess that would be my first. That's where I would start. Mm -hmm. I think if you're um, I, I, it depends also, I think, in, in the situation, I, I would encourage people to get professional help if you're in a group and you know and extricate yourself it's certainly mm -hmm. good to talk to friends and you know um trusted associates and whatnot and family about things if if you're in something like that and get professional help there are groups that help people get out of cults they're you know medical yeah. health, uh mental health professionals and there's a lot of a lot of things out there you know. Yeah, actually, if I can dovetail on that, I mean, there's mm -hmm. the International Cultic Studies Association. Mm -hmm. There's an organization called um, Hashtag I Got Out, which is a whole 
a social media campaign. Um, those two organizations list other resources. You know, if yeah. you suspect you're you're in some crazy group and you're thinking something's not right here, go poke around on those websites. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for 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 chatting with us. Um, you know, uh, it just was. We're so we're so happy that that you know Spencer, you reached out and that you connected us with Esther, yeah. and then we got a chance mm-hmm. to really chat a couple of months ago, then chat again today, and um, and be our first guests on the show and our first like um, compliment piece to a to an episode that we we focused on. And um, and again, please, um, if people want to find out more about about uh, the books, your work, where can they where can they follow you? For me, I guess you'd go to my website, which is gsrhealingarts.com. Um, and I'll also be putting stuff up on the blog, which is less professional and more of a <laughs> event. <laughs> um, but that's cultconfessions2.com. You can find me at um, all over the place. But <laughs> the easiest one is um, uh, cult. Actually, you know what? The best one is um, Instagram. Uh, official Spencer Schneider, not to be confused with the fake Spencer Schneider. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not the unofficial one. Exactly. <laughs> well, thanks so much for chatting with us. It was and, great chatting uh, with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for, for having, having us. us. It was a lot yeah. of fun. You guys Thank were great. Yeah, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, and, and again, please be sure to, uh, to to go check out their work, check out their books, and um, you know, just be. Be vigilant. Big shout out to um, Cult Cult Vault Pod for connecting us to begin with. Oh honestly. yeah, Cult Vault Pod. Um, I think Cult Vault Pod was the one who uh, uh, tagged Spencer initially. Oh, so um, yeah. So big shout out. So be sure to follow at Cult Vault Pod on Instagram. On the yeah. Instagram, um, that podcast focuses all around uh, cults, and it's uh, if you really want to deep dive into the world of cults, head on over there. Really, some really great great work. Well, that's all we have today. We're, we're, we're back next week with another episode. I've been Adam Mace. I've been Christine Marinelli. And thank you for taking a ride on New York Mystery Machine. Tammany Hope of a Ghosts.